Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. If you like my show, you're going to love the official Lakers podcast on Podcast One. Join Emmy-winning sports reporter Susie Schuster and co-host Aaron Larsoul as they discuss the Lakers news of the day, break down games of the week, and have exclusive interviews from players, coaches, and sports personalities. I did their show in February last year. It was a lot of fun. So don't miss the official Lakers podcast every week on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dubin, freelance writer, has done some great work at 538 and so many other places. I wanted to have him on because Jared fulfills an interesting combination of interests within basketball, which I think ties in well now. He's a CBA guy. We worked together at Mid-Level Exceptional back when that existed, and also a, a talented basketball analyst. So we talk about Steph Curry's injury. We talk about how the extensions that we've seen over the last few weeks affected the 2020 free agent class and moving forward, and then our basic takeaways from the season so far. So lots of different things. Episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. Episode runs just over an hour. Uh, lots of good stuff in there. Hope you really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Always fun to come on. There are going to be other things that that we talk about. Uh, when I pitched you on coming on, we were we had a different kind of thesis. <laughs> but in between when we discussed that and when we are recording this, Stephen Curry broke his hand, and we don't know the the scan happened now. But they have the Warriors have not released their interpretation of it. They're talking to more specialists, but he's going to be out for a while. I would say the short end would be around ten games, and the long end would be maybe twenty twenty five, and that fundamentally changes the season for the defending Western Conference champions. Yeah, I think it changes what we um, perceived of what was going to happen with their season. But based on what they showed through the first four games, maybe it doesn't quite change as much as we think. Like they were before last night when they gave up 43 points in the first quarter to the Suns. They had the worst defense of all time coming into the game. They were giving up like 119 points per 100 possessions. Now, obviously, some of that is, you know, this is a better offensive environment, probably the best offensive environment in history. And I hadn't done the, you know, adjusted offensive and defensive ratings yet. So I don't know if it was, you know, scaled to league average the worst. But I mean, last year's Cavs gave up whatever it was, like 116 or 117. And this Warriors team was giving up considerably more than that. And it didn't look like there were really any fixes on the way. Basically, the only plus defender 
in the lineup right now is Draymond, especially with Kevon Looney out. And, I mean, they're playing nine guys 23 or younger. They had the the seventh, I think, lowest minutes-weighted age in the league after being one of the more experienced teams in the league the past few years. I just did not really see all that much hope for the defense. And uh, it was basically just going to be Kent, Steph, Draymond, and D'Angelo create enough offense to overcome what looked like a truly awful defense. And uh, and now, I mean, obviously, not having Steph makes it seem like the, the answer to that is definitely no. But even before that, it was looking like probably no. So I'm not sure. Sh- like, it obviously changes a lot in terms of our perception of them and what their goals should be and uh, how the rest of the season is going to play out. But I'm not sure it changes um, what the team actually was as much as we might think because it, it looked like it might just be a bad team. That's a great point. And it bears repeating that the Warriors were, I mean, they were going to lose that game against the Suns anyway. They were, mm-hmm. so we could think of them as one in three with a, a brutal point differential. And the one game they won was a blowout over the Pelicans who are dealing with their own stuff and were missing two of their starters, two of their best players. Actually, you could argue three, including Zion Williamson. And they got run by the Oklahoma City Thunder. They got run by the Phoenix Suns. And the Suns are obviously looking better. That's one of the positive stories of the first five games of the season. Mm-hmm. But it has the Warriors became an interesting test case of an idea that Nate and I and a few others have been bouncing around over the last few years, which is the importance of NBA caliber players. And they just didn't have enough guys. Some of that was structural, you know, the the weakness of the small forward position, which, yeah, Clay Thompson's out, but everybody already knew that. that that's not mm-hmm. some sort of new constraint. But the center position got a lot worse when Looney and Collie Stein were unavailable and everything else. But the, I, the kind of the core question with this year's Warriors when they were healthy was, are Steph Curry and Draymond Green, but more specifically Steph, good enough to prop up more limited players? And my theory was that offensively, yes, and then defensively, no, just because there were so many points to attack and the Warriors were so abysmal in transition defense that they're, you can't really fix things like that. So if the offense is worse and they're giving it more in transition and all that kind of stuff, it, it all fits in. Now it becomes a very different set of questions, and a lot of it, I think, is going to be context-dependent because they're not going to be good. I think that's relatively clear now, not only because they're short on talent, but because they don't have a lot of pieces that make life easier on other guys now. You know, like, the lack of shooting was exploiting, was, like, bringing out Draymond Green's limitations offensively a little Mm -hmm. bit. Well, now you lose the best shooter of all time. That's going to be a lot harder. But the big question for me, and I think what's going to define this 10 games, 20 games, whatever the heck it is, is what does Steve Kerr do? Because he deserves a ton of credit for basically transforming the Warriors, understanding how to maximize their preliminary talent, especially in the early years. I would argue that he didn't do that in the Durant years, but they didn't need to because they were the best team in basketball by a mile and a half. And now that approach won't work. I, I'm a firm, firm believer that you have to get simple, you have to get basic, and maybe he disagrees and maybe he's right. Kerr has, Kerr has earned the ability to stick to his guns, whatever they are, but it's going to be really important to see, well, what is important to him and does it work? Right. I think he said the other day when he was talking about their offensive struggles that he was like, you know, we could go super simple with it and just put Steph at the top of the key and have him run 100 pick and rolls a game like the Rockets do with James Harden. But that's not what we believe in. And it's also, you know, Steph's a skinny guy, he's 180 pounds or whatever he is. And that kind of thing takes a toll on a player. And just physically, Steph is not 
as able to handle that as Harden is because, you know, Harden is much more sturdily built, we'll say it as kindly as we can. Um, and I think that you're right. They're going to have to make some changes now based on the talent available. It seems like they might just need to run 100 D'Angelo pick, D'Angelo pick and rolls a game, whether it's with Draymond or Pascal or Looney or whoever they have out there. Um, it doesn't really seem like there's really another way for them to create offense because now, other than Draymond and Russell, they don't have like the plus passers that make the kind of system that Kerr wants to play work. You know, you need guys who are experienced at reading defenses on the fly and changing their minds at the last minute and making decisions and not just doing what is in front of them. Um, and they don't really have that right now. And I, I don't really see a way that they can manufacture points that isn't just, you know, put your two best guys now in pick and roll situations, force defenses to help them recover and, you know, trust Draymond to make four on three plays. The issue there is nobody's going to leave the shooters when Draymond is coming down the middle because they know he doesn't want to shoot. And much like the Cavs did in, I think, the 2015 finals before David Lee showed him how to do it on the short roll, they're just going to keep that big man at the rim and be like, all right, Draymond, take 100 floaters or try to finish over somebody at the rim. And that's not his strength. His strength is pulling that guy up, making the lob pass, pulling the corner guy out and making that kick to the corner. You know, And uh, it's, uh, it's going to be really tough. And I don't know that there's much Kerr can do in this situation, but I think that the the easiest and most obvious thing to do is the exact thing that he said like two days ago that he doesn't want to do. Right. And so then that's really where the question is. And also how does this season affect, you know, like D'Angelo Russell's value around the league. Now the Warriors signed D'Angelo Russell acquired him because it was a sign and trade hard cap themselves. They sacrificed some serious stuff to get him because they want D'Angelo Russell. It was not as to get him as an eventual trade piece or anything like that. They, they chose D'Angelo Russell and, I don't think they wanted this way to evaluate him, but at least they get it now. And while I have strong opinions on how that is going to turn out, it is it, it now becomes a much different test for him and a different test for the front office because if it goes poorly in so I, I had this theory that, you know, Russell's value was pretty stable and that he if the season didn't work out, it Teams that liked him in the first place, Minnesota being the most prominent among them because there's it's well known it's well known how they were courting him, that they would be able to write that off as he's playing in a different role, like playing with Steph as as great as he is. That's a very different set of circumstances. Well, now this is something more similar to what he had in Brooklyn, significantly worse talent in my opinion. And if so, if it doesn't work, I wonder if if that would change how D'Angelo supporters think about him. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too. This is now the second year in a row that this has happened with D'Angelo's team. You know, last year, early in the season, Karis LeVert was like looking like an all-star early in the year. And then he has that horrible leg injury that we thought he was going to be out for the year. Obviously, ended up coming back. But then even after that, it was Dinwiddie first who sort of picked up the mat. Excuse me, picked up the mantle and became like the guy for them. And then he got hurt shortly after. And that was really when D'Angelo picked it up. And that's when he made like his all star run and things like that. And now, obviously, he comes to the Warriors. Clay's already out. Uh, KD obviously leaves in the deal to bring him there. They trade Andre Iguodala in the same deal. Sean Livingston retires and now steps out too. It's like all of the guys that were ahead of him in the pecking order for control of the offense are out again. And it's the same thing that happened to him last year. He responded well last season, but he had an infrastructure 
in Brooklyn with, you know, stocked with shooters and a role man like Jared Allen and and spacing of the kind he's really just not going to have in Golden State now. And um, I wouldn't think that he can respond in exactly the same way, even offensively. It's just going to be so much more difficult because the guys that they have there are not as conducive to creating success for a D'Angelo type player. And just because they're not going to make decisions as quickly or as well as the guys that used to be in Golden State or as the guys that were in Brooklyn with D'Angelo last year. Right. And also, how does this affect Myers and Kerr's willingness to bring Clay Thompson back on what sort of timeline? Because if they're far behind pace, then the motivation to do a lot with it is 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 limited. And I don't even think that's necessarily in terms of tanking. It's just we know that with ACL tears, that that early stretch can be hard and players aren't really 100% for a while. So, I mean, Porzingis sat for basically a year and a half. I It wouldn't surprise right. me. And, and just quickly, like the uh, the average guy from the ACL tear that came, was coming back in the last few years was like 13 or 14 months. And even to make it back by like March, it would have been nine months for right. Clay. Right. So why why push it and and be there and maybe you get into a circumstance where being back for a few games if he's even close then you get the kind of the Paul George thing and you just get a little bit of a flow but also the team will probably look really different maybe they don't even want to do that. So, yeah, I mean, my expectation is that due to this absence and just everything else, them also not being good in the first place when we got to see them, that the Warriors won't make the playoffs. That opens up a spot. We've seen other teams do it. And we'll get into those sorts of takeaways first, but what we later, but what, what I wanted to get to next was what we were originally going to talk about, which is the or before we get to that because sure. I think this affects it. Um how do you think this will affect their stance on like whether they're willing to trade D'Angelo? <sighs> I don't. I, my thought was that they weren't going to trade him during this season anyway. The biggest limitation there is the hard cap. Basically, mm-hmm. they cannot trade D'Angelo Russell in any move that p- takes more money onto the Warriors' books. Now, if the right offer comes across the table and does not add money to their books, they could theoretically do it. I guess what I would say is, let's see. So it might be the reverse example of what I talked about for. Russell Partisans and other places, if Russell can't succeed, not necessarily in terms of wins or losses or offensive rating, but like if he just doesn't do what the front office wants, I wouldn't, I would be very interested because they haven't really ever had to do this before with whether they would consider doing the thing that I think almost every team should be more aggressive about, which is cutting bait on players that you, you don't think are good enough, basically trading them too early instead of too late. And if, Russell is, you know, if he's overpaid on this contract and he does still have supporters, then it could make sense to actually trade him during this league year. Yeah, I think that makes sense to me, too. And I think there's going to be a lot of interest because I think most of the other teams in the league are going to expect Golden State to sort of sink down toward the bottom of the standings over these this next month or two and obviously you can't even get traded i think is he a december 15th guy or a january 15th guy i believe he's a december 15th guy because he didn't sign using bird rights he was signed oh but that's interesting because he was signed and traded i'm on i'm honestly not sure yeah i don't know how that works um but yeah i mean look if they're sinking toward the bottom of the standings and there's an opportunity there to restock not just with their pick this year but with even more in the future, I mean, I think you have to take a hard look at it, even if it wasn't in your original plans. Per Eric Pincus, the Basketball Insiders, the uh, it's December fifteenth for Russell, so yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and mm-hmm. yeah, and it's whereas for Looney and 
Clay Thompson, both of whom signed with the Warriors with bird rights. It was it's January fifteenth. Got it. I mean, I still don't know how it works, but anyway, it, yeah. it's tricky. And and so, okay, so I wanted to transition into the extensions. It was an extremely active thing. We're not going to go, you know, deal by deal. We'll probably talk about some of them. But what if there are, there are a bunch of different threads worth tugging on a little bit with this? And mm-hmm. one of the ones that I thought was most interesting, I did a so I do a piece in the off season every year, breaking out the league wide total spending capacity for the upcoming year. And and it always gets reduced because of extensions and trades and all that kind of stuff. And then sometimes some opens up in June and July just because teams with space clear it out or clear out more and stuff like that. But what I found most interesting was we had all these high money extensions, you know, guys like Siakam and also Kyle Lowry, who counts against this. Mm-hmm. But it didn't actually impact the league-wide capacity to spend that much it was more in the realm of like 30 to 40 million rather than the 60 or 70 or 80 that i expected it was going to be and i thought that was fascinating for a couple different reasons one i mean that a lot of the teams that had money still have it you know like the grizzlies and the hawks most notably the hawks have just they have double max space right now but also because how that affects the overall dynamic of free agency because you had this massive culling of desirable young players who are going to be restricted free agents and still a lot of space out there, which probably helped motivate Hollinger talked about this a little bit teams to get agreements because then you could start to get scared. Oh crap. Well, like who are the Hawks going to offer? It's probably going to be our person. So we might as well just pay him now. Yeah. I was about to mention the conversation. I think it was Nate and Hollinger that they were talking about it where most of the teams with most of the cap space next off season are the teams who are like young and bad right now. You know, it's your Knicks and your Hornets and your Hawks and the Grizzlies. And I think Cleveland might have been included in that group. Um, and those were all the kind of teams that shouldn't necessarily be going after like the DeMar DeRozans of the world, but should be, you know, clamoring for the the Jalen Browns and the, you know, the DeJounte Murrays and things like that. Um, and taking all of those guys off the market obviously eats into a significant portion of the players that were going to be available. So, I mean, I don't know who those teams are going to try to go after. It may be a busier trade season because it's looking like, you know, one of the worst free agency classes in quite a while. But, I mean, if you're just trying to trade for guys, I mean, these guys have to get paid by someone. They don't necessarily have to get paid as much as uh, a lot of these guys are – what did you guys call them in the 16s? The stupid 16s or what the was sou- it? The sour 16s. Sour 16s, okay. Um, a lot of these guys are coming off the books this summer, um, and now they're back in it as like the summer with the least spending capacity in quite a while. So I think I found that part interesting too. Yeah, that that is interesting. And the age component of this is really important. That was something that I noted when I the aforementioned piece, I talked about how it was a really unusual crop of teams that have cap space. And also, mm-hmm. I mean, the way the, the structure of it of being more space around the league, but very little that was over the about 10 million is a good shorthand for the non taxpayer mid level exception. So that's not even close to starter money anymore. It's you know it's a significant contract, and I'm not going to say ten million dollars is you know just crap or anything like that. But let's talk about guys like Danilo Gallinari and Serge Ibaka and maybe Marc Gasol. And yes, those players have made a lot in their career, and maybe they're going to prioritize something other than salary. They're free to do whatever they want. That's the beauty of free agency. But 
I can imagine the agents and those players being extremely concerned about where this is going because even with the reduction in players like Jalen Brown and Buddy Heald and everything else, it's hard to imagine, other than maybe like a single exception for, you know, a single guy, these younger teams throwing real money at these veterans because they don't need, they're not as much about the short term is the long term. And the other big part is, yeah, maybe maybe one or two of them could get a, a short term deal for a lot of money, but then they're just back out on the market again. And at a year older, and in a lot of the cases, especially if these guys are in their early to mid 30s, that can mean a lot too. Yeah. And I think even just among the guys that you mentioned there, I think it's particularly interesting for Gallo, just because he's a little bit younger than, than Serge and Gasol and DeRozan. Um, but also he seems like the kind of guy where like if a Portland goes out and gets Gallo, I feel like that really raises their ceiling from where they are right now, just due to the, the quality of their, you know, wing and, uh, combo forward rotation right now. He seems like a guy where he can, he can push a team a level up and still, as long as it's not, um, you know, a super young team, fit their timeline and be signed beyond this year. And if someone, you know, like that trades for him, then suddenly he doesn't have to worry about the market quite as much because he could just sign with the team that trades for him. Um, whereas if he gets sent to another team, it's uh, obviously things can turn out much differently. That also ties in with the importance of bird rights in a lot of these circumstances. Mm-hmm. So Gallo, great example, but Abaka and Gasol could be as well if Toronto is aggressively going after the 2021 plan they might sign Gasol or Ibaka both to one-year deals but do they really want that do they want to do they want a one-year deal with the Raptors maybe I mean maybe they do and maybe it's better than some of the other offers that are out there but that's where Gallo to the Blazers so the first place I saw that was I think Windhorse had it as a possibility in a column Basically, we kind of, kind of talked about different things Portland could do with Hassan Whiteside, most notably, if and when Yusuf Nurkic comes back. And I do really like that as an idea. Portland could theoretically. It's one of these kind of underappreciated possibilities. They could also just create straight-up cap space for next year. And Really? Th- that's interesting. Yeah, because they the contract for CJ, the extensions and all that, don't kick in. And Nurkic is not making that much money. They could clear, I believe it's like... 15 to 20 million in space. But you could make an argument, a pretty sound one, in fact, that Danilo Gallinari, especially because he would help them this year, that Mm -hmm. he's a better use of that than somebody else in cap space. It's a very uninspiring free agent class. And also remember that if they, if ownership is willing to do this, if they pay Gallo, then they also get a bigger mid-level exception. And so then they can get a, a better role player, all that kind of stuff there. So it's, it's interesting to kind of think about what Olshay wants. Now he's pretty steadfastly avoided forwards over the last little bit. Maybe that's maybe that's more opportunity, but it doesn't seem that way considering what Aminu signed for. They traded Harkless basically for Hassan Whiteside and everything else. But I do really like that fit. And also the idea of Portland being dominant offensively and then, you know, good enough defensively makes a lot of sense to me. You know, like that, I think the theory of the case there, yeah, probably not going to win a title, but can be a more established playoff team, potentially win a round or two, depending on how the bracket breaks out, just like last year. To me, that's a very successful season. That is a good path for them. And, 
Gallo just uh, once, especially once Nurkic gets back, Gallo makes that a lot. He makes it easier to stay on that path, and the outside chance that they could be better than that, I think, is significantly higher with Gallinari than with Whiteside as his backup guy. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm not too into Whiteside, and I think that. <laughs> Uh, I what think it was, was Doris what, was talking in the first ahead. game of the season just about the way he affects their pick and roll game. Like Nurkic is a good playmaker on the roll; he's become one over the past few years. Uh, Whiteside is not that, and um, the ability to make plays on the on the short roll. You know, even when they had Mason Plumley as the five there, I mean, it's such a key to the way that offense works. And uh, I do think having Whiteside in the mix. Granted, he has, I think, been making more plays this year than he ever did uh, in Miami on that kind of a play. But not having the same quality of playmaker there, I think, affects the offense a lot, especially once you get into the playoffs and teams are like, let's just make this guy do this. And we're not letting Dame beat us at all. Um, I I do think you need a different guy in that spot. Obviously, Nurkic could be back by the playoffs. But then, like, what are you doing with Whiteside? Are you putting him on the bench? I would just like if you have to give up an asset or whatever to um to okc to make it happen like gallo just seems like someone who would help them so much more asking price is going to be such Mm -hmm. a fascinating factor in some of these situations especially because we don't know who the sellers and who the buyers are going to be for okc if it saves them a little bit of money and you know maybe gets them a modest asset it's probably worth considering and with gallinari versus some of the other players that could be in the market how much leverage do teams like Oklahoma City have? Because, yeah, they could do that, but then also like with buyouts and everything else. Now, Gallo is more valuable because he's a forward. We'll see this with the centers, too. There are a bunch of different centers that could potentially be on the buyout market. Will any of those teams have enough leverage to get something of value, or is it just going to be so tepid that some teams choose like a modest thing and some teams just buy their guy out? I think a lot of that is going to depend on what the league looks like at the trade deadline. Like if the Clippers emerge as a juggernaut that doesn't look like they can be beat, there might not be as much leverage for those teams because it's like, what are we making this upgrade for really? Whereas, you know, if the Clippers are on pace to be like a 50 or even 55 win team or, you know, the, the, the Bucks slide back and look like a 55 win team and Philly, you know, takes a while to get their offense going. Then I think you could see much more action and much more leverage for those teams because there are going to be more teams that think they can win it because of what those other teams look like. That's a great point. And the Clippers are our really interesting test case also because of how they fit into the buyout market and mm-hmm. will players like, I don't know, Iguodala kind of seems like he might be going in a different direction, but there are lots of different players with all those sour 16s and a bunch of other things hitting hitting the market that or that could, and what will they prioritize, what, what do they want, and then, I mean, the one that I've been banning about a lot, partially also now that Sabonis got extended, and he basically can't be traded, it's exceedingly hard due to the poison pill provision, the one that I've been beating my chest about is the possibility that if Indiana decided to move on from Miles Turner, I think that's somebody who the Clippers you unload a bunch of different good things because if they can get Turner, a lot of this gets solved. Like they they get a wonderful defensive player who is also just a great fit offensively for what they want to do, and who's under contract for a while, so they wouldn't have to worry about oh crap, we traded for this talented center, you know, like we got. Marcus or whatever else we're going to do. Now we have to pay that guy. And yes, yeah, Steve Ballmer has a lot of money, but I think I think Turner's just a perfect fit of timing and age and skill set. That would absolutely be perfect. And I'm angry at myself that I didn't come up with it before you. 
Is there anybody else that you've thought of as a particularly compelling possibility? Not really for them, just because I wanted to see how, you know, that the Harrell and Zubach front court combination or not combination, but that that pairing at center worked for them. Like Zubach, I think, protected the the rim at least pretty well during the regular season last year and then basically got played off the floor by the Warriors in the playoffs. And um, you know, Harrell's rim protection numbers weren't as good, but he just he's so physical and he just destroys guys on the other end of the floor that I thought like, okay, it's possible they might not need to go get themselves an upgrade. Um so I was sort of waiting to see what I saw from them through the first, you know, twenty, thirty games or so. But I mean Turner would be perfect, essentially. Turner is also a, a big enough upgrade, depending on the, the asset cost that would require, that you you don't even have to like hate Zubac in order to make that deal. It's, it's just, hey, Miles Turner is a great fit, can make it happen, all that sort of stuff. Like There, there are different motivations behind trades, and I think that's a, a compelling one. Something that I've been... I had kind of had in the back of my mind before this is you you always look at when a team makes a decision, a front office makes a decision on a player that kind of puts them in a, an, in an awkward position. And like Jared Allen had been one of this, one of those for me because mm-hmm. they signed another player who plays exactly the same position, who is also intensely close with their highest profile guys. So those <laughs> players generally get a high presence, but I don't think the Nets are going to move on from Jared Allen because I don't think they can. And they shouldn't. I mean, I was uh, I was at the uh, the Nets Knicks game. Um, was it last week? I guess it, yeah, it was still last week at this point because we're only in the second week of the season. And uh, the media section at Barclays is right next to the I can't I can't remember what they call like the Nets super fan cheering section, but you know those guys and gals are cheering literally the entire game except for at halftime. Like there's not longer than 30 seconds that they're not doing a chant. And this year, like, I don't remember this guy being there last year, but there is one guy who, you know, even after the chants, will just like keep yelling like random asides into the chants. And he was screaming at Kenny Atkinson in the fourth quarter. He was like, you don't need to play DeAndre. We already got KD. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was good analysis. They should just have Jared Allen out there. Somebody like Tristan Thompson, you know, I could, I don't know exactly know what Cleveland wants for this year. You know, they've been better, I would say, overall than expected so far. But those types of players, does he get bought out? Jordan Clarks and all that type of stuff, I think is going to be really interesting. It's obviously too early for it, but though that kind of, you know, clearly negative value contract, but also potentially useful player to a team that is not their current team. Yeah, I think that it depends, obviously, on... Uh, what the situation looks like with that Cavs roster. But I think we saw it uh, with Ennis Cantor last year. Even if there are teams that think that a guy like that can help them, the contract is just so big that even finding a way to match the salary in order to trade for him is just really, really difficult. Uh, nobody really has salaries that big that are uh, attached to not useful players that the team needs and that the other team would be willing to take on because usually those deals that are too big like that they're multiple years or they're the player is just too bad um and it just it's it's really difficult to move those guys i would think that thompson for that reason is more likely to be a buyout guy than uh than a trade guy as you i mean you're seeing it with iguodala too iguodala might be a little bit different just because he plays a position of so much more scarcity and value mm-hmm. but Again, I mean, and the other element of this is while Iguodala could help a lot of teams, 
you're right on the the structural part of this, which is how do you how do you have the numbers to make a deal like this happen? And so, if Memphis hopes or expects that they're going to extract something, they're probably going to have to give up something in, in the deal because you know that could be salary flexibility, which I think for them is not that big of a loss as, as I'm interpreting where this is going. But maybe they see somebody on the market that or the, on the market this coming summer that that's worth it. I, you know, especially because they'd be looking at the restricted class, I don't particularly see it. And the the other big problem with restricted free agents is, and this gets into this kind of the stuff we were talking about before, is it's hard to actually get them. You know, like Sean Marks is an amazing example here because you basically, with, with Brooklyn, not only do you have to overpay them, but you also have to have the team let it go. Like, Marks dodged a few really bad contracts by the team's oh, matchup. Yeah. And then, and then dodged one of them and then picked it up anyway without with without <laughs> crab because he wanted to. Yeah, uh, that remains one of the more puzzling sequences of events in terms of the way that he moved around the league. Plenty more to talk about with Jared Dubin, but first a message from betonline.ag. The hashtag Sportsnet Challenge is still going on, and the last time they updated the standings, I am still in first place, which is awesome. Taking some pride in my former NFL covering days and... The format is very good for me. Picking who picking who will win and lose is better for me than sometimes with the spread. But there's so much fun stuff that you can do at actual betonline.ag. A great week of sports. The World Series is over now, but of course basketball is still going strong and it's another good week for football. I'm recording this and releasing this on Thursday. My Niners against the Arizona Cardinals will be fun. Packers Chargers, Patriots Steelers, and then in college, Oregon SC, Georgia, Florida, Utah, Washington, and lots of other fun stuff. And then NBA, full swing. So you can, wherever you want to go with that. And in-game betting is great too. For those of you who heard it, had a really fun segment with Dave Mason last week explaining how in-game betting works. And he said that basketball in-game betting is his favorite. So you can definitely check that out. But no matter how you do it, use the Podcast One promo code at betonline.ag and you get a 50% sign-up bonus. It's a great way to check it out, and that's a, a really nice incentive. So again, betonline.ag, use that Podcast One promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. We also have a $5,000 season-long charity contest and a lot of other fun stuff. You can check out podcastonesportsnet.com to check out the standings, see my beautiful name at the top. And again, Podcast One promo code, betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. One of the other elements that I wanted to talk about with this unusual extension cycle, which is thinking about it from the player and the team's perspective. So from the team perspective on a lot of these, Jalen Brown, Buddy Heald, most notable among them, you could maybe make the argument with Sabonis. They were thinking a max offer sheet might be on the table. and Or Siakam is another good example of this. And especially if it's a three plus one, Gordon Hayward is instructive here. The not the not the Gordon Hayward contract with the Celtics, but the one that he's the offer sheet he signed with the Hornets when the Jazz allowed him to hit the open market. Well, if, the Jazz would have been much happier, as it turns out, if they had, had him on a longer term contract. They wouldn't have lost him. All that kind of stuff. So, from the team perspective, if you could get a guy at less than the max and you think it's going to happen, that's nice. What I think from the player perspective is so notable here is is a larger feeding of this idea. I My theory is that it ties in with the just rapid increase in the salary cap that it becomes hard, especially if agents are amenable to it, to turn down the type of money that Jalen Brown and Buddy Heal got offered. It's entirely possible that they could have made an extra few million a year, maybe even a little bit more than that if they had a breakout season. But one, you're locking up life-changing money 
but also extremely importantly, you're doing it a year early. And going back, to, I did this in the Siaka piece, going back to Gordon Hayward again, that's a reminder of how quickly it can all go away. So you might be leaving a little bit on the table, but you've already gotten so much. And so that's really different from if you're negotiating like a $35 million contract or something like that in a previous iteration of the CBA. Yeah, I think it's also like there's the you know perception of how much a guy left on the table and then how much they actually left on the table. And guys that give up a little bit, like they take a little bit less than the max or things like that, that's not quite as big of a deal as if you're like, what did DeJounte Murray get? Like $64 million or something? I believe right? he got 464 yeah. Yeah, so that's a case where, like, you look at the way he's playing early in the season, it looks like he potentially left a whole lot more than that on the table. But it, it's impossible to know that before the season actually starts. And that's, I mean, again, it's life-changing money for anybody. And it's, even if you're leaving a lot of money on the table, it's really hard to turn it down. Do you have a, 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 do you have a favorite or a least favorite? of the extensions that we saw over the last few weeks? Uh, if from player perspective either, or the team one. perspective? I mean, it feels yeah, I mean, like from one the will team be perspective, one yeah, the, From the team perspective, DeJounte Murray. I mean, that dude is so good. Uh, he was already unbelievable defensively two years ago. I had him as a first-team all-defense guard that season. He was just ridiculously, ridiculously good. And, I mean, already he, he's a game-changing player in terms of his ability to lead the break for them. His passing vision already looks improved this year, like in a similar way to Derek White flashing passing vision last season that I didn't think that he had. Murray already looks like he's doing that this season. Um, that looks like a steal already. And, I mean, the deal doesn't start for a year. It's also fascinating that the Spurs to this point have kept Murray and Derek White apart. And mm-hmm. I, I, that might not continue, but you think about the destructive defensive potential of those two guys together and some of the different iterations. DeJounte's, yeah, it also has a lot more upside just because there's the potential for surplus value. That was actually one of my criticisms of the Jalen Brown mm-hmm. signing is just that it's so close to a max that I, I expect that it's a pretty reasonable chance that he'll get there. But for me, unless it's, you know, I, I, I talked about this going back all the way to the DeMarcus Cousins, that... Unless it's a, you know, Carl Anthony Towns, LeBron James, that type of situation where, yeah, you don't want to, unambiguous star of the future. If there's more uncertainty than that, I generally would be willing to take a little bit of a PR hit to wait to sign the guy just because there's so many things that can go wrong and it's a lot harder to make a shift after you've already signed that contract, just because then it's it's already locked in and everything like that. So with Brown, yeah, it's a distinct possibility, and if maybe they're willing to match, and maybe they have a feeling that the Hawks would do that or something like that. But for me, why I didn't love that one, it's not my least favorite, to be, to be sure. But why I really didn't like it was it didn't seem to me like a sufficient risk mitigation to justify it from Danny Ainge's perspective. That makes sense. I think also just like I like Jalen Brown. I liked Jalen Brown coming out of college more than I think some other people. Like there were a lot of people who were somewhat surprised and were sort of anti him being the number three pick in the draft. I liked it a lot. But I think there's also like there are not a shortage of Jalen Browns in the league. I don't think Um, I think you can find those players and find them cheaper than one hundred and three million dollars. But it's also like the Celtics already have one and you're paying so that you don't have to go look for one. I think it's interesting to think of from that perspective too. Yeah. I'm not comparing the two players at all, but yeah, I mean, especially because they, you know, with Tatum being 
more kind of I guess you could say more established. And Brown certainly had his moments, and I, I believe in what he could be. And there's and also with match rights, just make everything different. Because with match rights, if a player proves it, you could just you could just keep them. You know, you don't have to run the risk of them becoming an unrestricted free agent and going somewhere else. And that's why, to me, even though he has a lot of potential as to be a, like a, a solid starter, my least favorite of the rookie scale extensions was Sabonis because they basically paid him nineteen million dollars a year, and paying like the, for me, the dividing line for centers is probably around ten, maybe twelve. Distinct, and everybody below that shouldn't get paid a significant amount of money unless they have a chance to get into that group because a lot of the players below that aren't good enough to stay on the floor in the playoffs. And also the supply versus the demand is just not that extreme. And with Sabonis, the other reason I didn't like it is match rights. Maybe this season works out beautifully and things are perfect and he's the power forward and he can do all these other things or maybe Turner gets hurt or they trade him or something else. We don't see centers that aren't, you know, the Towns, Embiid, Jokic quality of player get these $25 million contracts anymore. Like the the getting the close to the 25% max, like that's the Pacers kind of, it seemed to me like they locked in payment in a different world than the one we live in. I sort of came down on the opposite side of that. I think that he was one of the guys that um, in restricted free agency made a ton of sense for a bunch of the, uh, the teams that were going to have space. Um, Like, you don't. I think that if Memphis got him and said goodbye to Valanciunas and played him with Jaron Jackson, that makes a ton of sense to me. Both of them can pass. Jackson sort of papers over the defensive deficiencies that Sabonis has. Um, you put them with Morant, all of a sudden you've got three guys that can really move the ball around the court. You could test defenses in all different ways. Um, I think they would have made a ton of sense for him. I don't know that they would have necessarily thrown a big offer sheet, but I could have seen Sabonis getting paid by one of the young teams. And uh, I, th- I thought he would have gotten more than that. And uh, I was somewhat surprised that uh, that he took it because I, I think if he had hit the market that he could have gotten more. Now, I didn't specifically go around asking about that. It's just because I like him a lot as a player, and I thought that there were multiple teams um, that have cap space that would have made a lot of sense for him. I wonder what Travis Schlenk would have done if Sabonis had been on the market because he is a compelling um, fit. Man, with Sabonis, Trey, Trey pick and rolls. like Yeah. But if he sees John Collins as a center and is a higher priority, and, and that gets into the idea that I think is is so challenging with restricted free agency, is to me, normally speaking, unless it's Sean Marks, restricted free agency is about falling in love, and you have to be really into that player because most offer sheets get matched, and so there's a big sacrifice unless you're going to be a troll like Portland was with the Ennis Canner offer sheet years and years ago. <laughs> like unless it's that type of circumstance, you really have to. Like I think that really hurt Marcus Smart, for example, and that's a shame because Marcus Smart's an awesome basketball player, and Danny Ainge benefited from that, and would not have probably as much with Jalen Brown just due to forward-sized guys being fundamentally different, even though Marcus Smart plays bigger than his height. And Sabonis then gets into a real challenge because I could see him having a small but powerful constituency, and that sometimes can be enough to get a guy's value up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think I'm part of that constituency. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like it. Yeah, I'm I'm just a big fan um, of his game, and I think it uh, it translates better to a starter's role than not necessarily than is widely believed than but then a a bunch of people i know believe i would say 
anything else on on these extensions? I mean, it's been interesting to see because remember, especially when the, they're coming in in October, that is a period of time when the teams have a lot more information on how these guys are looking than we do. And so you you could get, sometimes it's that way with actually it's more prevalent with option decisions. So for example, shortly before we started recording, the Warriors picked up Jacob Evans and Amari Spellman's options, one at least one of which I disagree with. But they have a lot more intel than we do. Whether they use it correctly or not is an open question. But so like for example with Siakam, it's entirely possible that the reps saw what he was looking like and what they intended his role to go, and they're like, oh, man, this it's going to get even bigger from here, so we might as well lock him up now. Yeah, that's definitely possible, and um, it just seems like even before they saw what he was looking like, it was pretty clear that he was going to have to be the pillar of whatever was happening over the next several years there, and too many teams pay for what a guy was rather than what a guy will be on the downside of their career. I think it's fine if you're paying for what a guy will be as opposed to what he was. If, if you've seen the signs that he can be what he will be, you know, like Mike Conley is the example I think of when the Grizzlies gave him that deal, everybody thought they were crazy, but there had been like moderate signs that he was going to be better over the course of the first, you know, three seasons of his career. He just hadn't really put it all together yet. And then the contract ended up, looking like a steal. Um, obviously, it's not the same with Siakam just because, you know, it's a, it's a max or pretty close to a max. So it's a little bit different. But I, I do think that that, you know, factors in there. The, uh, the, the other extension I wanted to talk about, though, I think this is uh, an interesting one for you, too, to see if you agree with me. The Torian Prince two-year, $29 million, I think it was, uh, extension, it's, it's notable, I think, that it's only two years and then it's notable that it seems like it's like a two or three million dollar a year overpay, and it seems like it's just there as a contract that can be packaged with someone else to get a star. Like it seems like that's the express purpose of that deal to me. I hadn't thought about the second part of what you said in in that fashion, but it does make intuitive sense to me. With I mean, so Torian Prince is going to be making about thirteen mil for each of those years, and. 13 million for a forward if he can actually play is totally fine. So, and but from a package perspective, especially because let's say Spencer Dinwiddie, he's only making 11. It's hard with 11 million dollars to for for 2021. That's what he's making. And it is hard to do stuff with that. We kind of we kind of talked about this before with some of the guys who are making too much. It can actually be a problem when they're making too little as well because you just don't you can't get commensurate value. That's part of why Dinwiddie is such a such a useful contract. And with Prince, I could I, you you could see it that way. Another element of it with this one, and I think you could tie in the Jalen Brown extension here and a couple of the other ones, is that the opportunity cost is actually pretty low for the Nets, especially because of the duration. So this does not preclude Brooklyn from using their mid-level exception. It does not preclude them from doing all the other things. And now that he's locked in on that money they have a lot more control over what happens from here. So mm-hmm. if if Torian Prince is a positive value, which of course is the best case scenario, then they can keep him or they can let him go, but it, uh, or they could trade it, you know, all that kind of stuff. Whereas if they hadn't agreed to an extension, they would have been much more at the mercy of the circumstances. So, I mean, you could say that that's how all restricted free agency ones are, but in their case, it's more extreme because of the potential of added years. Because remember, Duran and Irving and... DeAndre Jordan, like those guys are signed for a while and they're going to be presumably giving extra money. You know, they already gave Karis LeVert an extension too. 
that maybe this just ends up it, it's kind of a, an idea that maybe they were going to give up or like Prince was going to get an offer sheet that was different than this, but it probably would have been longer and maybe they just want to be able to potentially get out from under it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It also um it just aligns with the sort of timeline that they're in anyway. You know, those guys are four-year contracts. You extend Prince for two years. It doesn't like it doesn't go beyond the timeline of the guys that are the base of your team. Uh, those are the kind of deals that kill you a lot. Like you know, you, you look at example for the Knicks with the Joakim Noah contract. It extended beyond you know uh, Porzingis. Tim Hardaway extended beyond Porzingis. Courtney Lee extended beyond Porzingis, and that obviously really affected the way that they approached last summer, and it sort of backfired on them. Yeah, that I, I your experience was is put you in a good spot there, and you you do get into those real big challenges, especially when there's an age related component mm-hmm. to to getting into that, and it makes it harder to pivot and. I don't think the Nets particularly want to pivot, but retaining that flexibility, this was another one, an extension that I really liked. I liked significantly more than the Torian Prince one was the Justice Winslow one last year, which was also extremely unusual because that was two years with it. I believe it's structured as a team option, not a non-guarantee for that third year at $13 million a year. I just think Justice Winslow has proven it more, at least at that time, but also probably now, than Torian Prince has. And Prince... Yeah, I mean it's it's such a weird it's such a weird thing with him. I feel like he's super polarizing. He he is and I mean offensively the track record was pretty good in in Atlanta. You know, lower usage guy, but he was hitting the shots they asked him to hit and there's a value to that. Now, is that repeatable? We're going to have to see over the course of time. But also he just wasn't a good defender and to me, you have to do at least something on both ends, and I, you know, maybe Atkinson, like you believe that it'll work in their system. And this is another one I think maybe more so than than any of the other ones. Even though Prince was acquired by the same front office early in the same offseason, where maybe they're just more confident that his issues are correctable. Whether that ends up being correct or, or not, we'll have to see over time. Yeah, or just maybe that the issues don't matter as much when he's in the role he's going to be in in Brooklyn as opposed to the role that he was in in Atlanta. You know, even though his role was pretty narrowly defined in Atlanta, I mean, now it's basically just spot up for threes and guard the occasional combo forward. Um, that's it. He's not going to be asked to do really anything more than that. And granted, paying, you know, $14.5 million a year uh, for that type of player is a lot, especially because I think there's a bunch of them. But if they think that that role suits him and he will be good at it, paying for the certainty of not having to go find another one of those guys, I think is a lot of what motivates extensions. Something else briefly that I wanted to talk with you about, which I think is going to be a, a, a question that you and I and you know the other people who, can, who think about the CBA a lot are going to focus on this year is the value of bat, taking on bad contracts beyond this season. Because when 2020 is a bad free agent class and there are not that many teams with money, there are franchises, the Cavs are one of these because they have all these expiring contracts, the Memphis Grizzlies are another one, who have the capacity to take on bad money right now. But my current operating theory is that teams just aren't going to be desperate enough to clear the money, and so the asset return is going to be weak. And so sort of like what happened last year when the Cavs got that pick from Milwaukee to not only dump John Henson and Delhi, but also to get George Hill, who was better than those guys and was an important was an important part of their success later on. I but that that trade, you know, they did get a first round pick out of it. 
But then you look at what you know Memphis did and what the Clippers did in the, in the actual offseason, and I wonder what front offices are going to take away from that, even though every year is its own thing, in terms of timing when, you, what, when you're willing to give up what you have. Yeah, I think some of it is just based on can you get what you want for that renting of your cap space at the time it's being offered. You know, if you have a price that you're setting for what you'll do with the renting of the cap space and somebody hits it, like, okay, take it, you know? Um, and if they're not hitting it, then I think it's okay to wait because there's there's a chance that, like, if you've decided that the renting of your cap space is worth something and you're not getting it, like, I don't think you should sell at the time just because it seems like what you should do. Um, I think you should wait and see if you can get it. And if you don't, you know, you miss an opportunity, but you also held out for the best possible thing that you want because there are more times that you could do it than just right now, whenever right now happens to be. I brought up a couple of different teams for this possibility. And another one that I want to mention just to file away is the Oklahoma City Thunder. The Thunder are technically barely over the tax line right now. I think that's going to be resolved pretty easily. But as a technical matter, they could be as much, you know, like right now, if they just let Robertson and Gallo go, the Thunder would be about $35 million under the tax, not including their own draft pick and all the other stuff that they're getting. If they can move to be how you maybe get a better asset back for Gallinari is if you can also take on some money for a future season. And I'd be interested to see whether Presti and their ownership group, considering how hilariously expensive this team has been over the last couple of years— if they're willing to do that, because remember, that's just – it's not luxury tax money. It's just cash. So it's basically kind of like you could think of it as like buying a better draft pick. I think that makes a lot of sense. Oh, we have a little bit of time left. I, I just wanted to open the floor to you for – I mean we're a little bit over a week into the season with the later start. What, what has struck you? Have you? Do you have any takeaways from what we've seen? Um, I'm trying to think if there's anyone that has, has stood out particularly – good or bad um you know the the raptors being four and one and siakam just being unbelievable um so far is really cool to see uh miami um tyler hero i like i love this dude he's good man um i just think he's a really really good player um then uh and i and i like the way they just keep finding random guys like kendrick nunn i hadn't heard of before i found out he was starting for them on the first night of the season and he just seems like he knows how to play. He's a good shooter. Um, so I, I think that they – it had been a few years since they restocked their we-got-this-random-guy cupboard, and it seems like they've found a few of them this year. Not necessarily Hero because he was a first-round pick, but between none and then Duncan Robinson's a rotation player for them, and they got this guy Chris Silva who you know I wrote about this yesterday. He has 12 points, 14 rebounds, three assists, two steals, and five blocks in 37 minutes this season. And uh, eleven fouls too. So yeah, and he's on a two way, I believe. So that yeah. and I mean that's another one of those Miami Heat finds. Something that's been notable for me is at least as of so far, to me the bottom of the East has been the bottom of the East. You know, like the we were wondering. I wondered if any of those teams were going to break out, especially if one of the teams in the that mid tier of the East fell off. You know, like who could step into the void? I don't. I've been uninspired largely by Chicago. It's amazing how, like, if the second half of their Knicks game had gone differently, I probably would feel very differently. But them, you know, the Wizards, like, a lot of these teams are better than I thought, but are they 38 to 42 win teams? I, I probably don't think so. So, like, the Cavs, the Knicks, the Hornets, the Hawks, and especially now the Trey's going to miss some time. 
the Wizards, may, and I'd say the Bulls are the best of that bunch, but not by a significant amount. And if none of those teams can really break through, let's say, 35 wins, then the pathway in the east bottom of the East playoff picture gets a lot rosier for teams like the Nets, Pacers, and Pistons, even if they don't necessarily love the way their season started. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, too. And just, I mean, you look at the, the West, teams that were sort of expected to be in the mix uh, look like they really are not going to be. Like, the Kings are a disaster right now. They were the first team this season to make me shut my TV off and stop taking notes because I was just so frustrated at their inability to do, like, anything. It was, uh, oh, man, they they look super bad. And then you look at New Orleans, obviously Zion's out for a while. Drew and Derek Favors have been out for the last couple games, too. Um, you know, they, they don't look like they're necessarily going to be in the mix for a playoff spot either. Now it looks like the Warriors probably won't be. Um and and all of a sudden the Suns are you know one of the ten best defenses in the league right now. I haven't watched them yet. I I would say that that's probably not sustainable just based on how young they are. But if it is, then all of a sudden you know there are three or four teams that we expected to be in the mix that won't be, and one that is. Um, and and that's interesting too, just sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum. Right, and it's I mean just the way that it often works out because of injuries is it's a lot easier to, for teams to fall off than to get in because if a player misses 20 games it's it's a lot more common to see a great player miss time than to see a not great player become a great player you know like that that's what makes what Siakam has done what Giannis did last year so striking and Victor Oladipo two years ago as well and Oladipo then serves as an instructional example the other way because the Pacers have been really missing him and Something that I've been encouraged by with the West is that uh, some of the teams that I was most excited to watch have given, you know, not necessarily every single second of every game, but given signs of, oh, okay, this is going to work out. The Clippers are the most prominent there. They, you know, one of their losses was in a game Kawhi didn't play in, not particularly concerned with that. The other one was that loss to the Suns. But, you know, I saw them in person. I've watched them on TV. I think the theory of that team is sound. I think they're going to be really good. The Lakers have had some some great moments, including AD going absolutely wild on the Memphis Grizzlies. They did get worked by the Clippers. That's okay, especially because the Lakers also beat the Jazz, which is the only loss for the Jazz. I think they've had some nice moments despite Conley needing to find himself, which I think he's going to do. Like, And, and that's something that I think is, is worth mentioning, too, is understanding the sample that you have. And so... Yeah, Mike Conley missed a ton of shots in the first couple games of the season. When I watched the Jazz, I didn't see anything that made me think he's never going to hit those shots again, other than small guards in their 30s often hit a wall. Whereas, you know, if a team's getting bad shots or they're not being able to stop anybody, those sorts of things are a lot harder to change. So, like, for example, the Warriors defense, those problems weren't really going to resolve. Now it's very different without Steph. And like the Knicks starting five not being able to score, that's not a big surprise to me either. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I think uh, it was Seth that wrote about this the other day, just in terms of, you know, defenses that look a little bit frisky at the start of the year. And then you look at basically he was looking at the shot profile and what kind of shots they're giving up and, you know, whether teams are hitting threes against them or not, because that's not something that defenses have been shown to have, you know, a, a huge effect over over the years and just in terms of whether they're hitting the threes what what you want to do is limit the number of threes that are even attempted and that's something that that kenny atkinson talked about the other night when i was at the uh i guess actually it was last night nets uh nets pacers and um 
somebody asked him about all the threes they're giving up, and he's like, you know, when you look at it, we're top ten in terms of limiting attempts, but everybody's just making their threes right now. And he's like, we're just going to keep limiting the attempts, and um, you know that makes a lot of sense, and that's something that you know when you look at some of the teams that are better than expected defensively, you got to pay attention to that just as much as you know what the results have been so far. Right, and that's why it can be uh, it can be useful to look at things like so if you have cleaning the glass, you can look at the proportion of an opponent's shots that came in a different area. And so one that I like to calibrate on is how many how many mid-range shots is a team allowing? So if a team is allowing very few mid-range shots, that means they're, it doesn't seem like they're doing as much to exert control. And then you can also slide over a few categories, and it's effective field goal percentage. So if a team has a, let's say, a bad opponent shot profile, and the opponent effective field goal percentage is still low, then that seems to me to be like a really basic idea of like, okay, that's prone to rust to me. Like, that's the way it's going to work. And if a team has a really good profile but opponents are making a ton of shots, which is more more along line what Kenny Atkinson said, well, then you can probably expect that. It's not a guarantee because even over the course of an 82-game season, things aren't always fair. But it is a it is worth remembering that these teams have played four and five games that it takes time to normalize and balance. Right. And uh, I guess uh, last thing that uh, interests me so far, um, or I guess two things. One, um, Nikola Jokic, uh, get in shape, buddy. Um, play yourself into shape over the next few weeks. And two, um, John Morant is so good. Like that, that, that dude's passing vision uh, is and, just and, unbelievable. And he's faster than I thought he was too. Like he's just such a, such a great athlete. And like, there was a play in Brooklyn one where he got, he was already streaking, got the ball and was just past everybody. It's just gone. Mm-hmm. And the level of athleticism is insane. We combine that with the passing ability. I mean, that kid's going to be really, really good. Yeah, I, I'm really excited to to wa- keep watching Jaw. And one other one you mu- brought up, Jokic. A storyline that to me is important for this whole season for the Nuggets is they're basically trying out two power forwards to be their power forward of the present and ideally the future. And Paul Millsap, who's been the, the last two years, and now when they picked up that option, and Jeremy Grant, who they traded for. I like the theory of the Jeremy Grant trade, and I just want to see it in, in practice because. Jokic is such an unusual talent, and I think, especially offensively, I think it's going to work really well because Grant is a, is an, a natural cutter and can fit in well with that. But defensively, Jeremy Grant and Paul Millsap are very different players physically. Like, there's just the way that they succeed defensively is not the same, and it's entirely possible that one style is a little bit better to pair with Jokic than the other. I just want to see it in practice. That makes sense, and that's something that I actually hadn't thought of. So I'm I'm pretty glad you brought that up. But the reason that um, that I think the the Grant thing works so well is just because he's so capable of handling backup center duties too. And I and I think that that makes him just a little bit different um, than Millsap. Yeah, and and that's going to be something worth watching for the remainder of this year. Jeremy Grant, another potential beneficiary of everything else that happened over the last two weeks, just because of the oh, thinning yeah. out. He could be a potential potential fit for a lot of these teams. I mean, Memphis, Atlanta in particular, I think he would he would do nicely either of those places. And if Neil O'Shea ever decides that he wants a power forward, he could potentially fit in Portland as well. He's still super young too, right? He's like 24, 25. Yeah, he's 25 now. He'll turn 26 during this season. So yeah, it's still pretty young though. I mean, you would mm-hmm. expect that his next contract will be all, you know, prime and stuff. Right. This would be like the last contract before you start paying for his decline. Right. So that's a... That's a really – he's going to be in a fascinating situation. And as we talked about the difference of you know match rights, the importance of that, 
the Nuggets don't have match rights. He's an unrestricted free agent. So he, I think he might end up getting paid, but then remember the cascading stuff of the luxury tax. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's going to be, so maybe that leads to Malik Beasley being somewhere else or one of these other guys. Like that, maybe that's the way this turns out. I, I like Malik Beasley a lot, and it takes a lot for me to say that because he went to Florida State. Um, just in case people are wondering, that's the worst school in the world. Um, for obvious reasons, if you follow me, you probably know why I think that. Um, but I think I think he's a good player, and I think that he would be a good target for uh, for somebody in a restricted free agency, especially one of those teams. Like you look at, like could the Knicks use more shooting next to RJ Barrett just to give him more space to operate? I think so. Um, you know, you even look at Atlanta; like they want to stock the floor with like a million shooters around Trey Young. Uh, I think that he would make sense there, even. Um, so I, I think he should get not necessarily a huge deal, but what was the report that he turned down for 48 or something like that? Like I could see him getting 64 over four, like DeJounte Murray got once he hits the market because you have to overpay to get a guy anyway. Right. And the supply will, is really heavily in his favor. It's heavily in Brandon Ingram's favor as well. A couple of guys really benefited from what happened. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read him wherever his work shows up. Lots of great places. And you can support his Patreon. Last Night in Basketball, you can see that in his Twitter bio. His handle is jadubin5, J-A-D-U-B-I-N, and then the number five. Love having him on. I think his insight is very valuable. It brought up some, some really interesting takes that I hadn't really pieced together in terms of where this all might be going. And I do really enjoy that. I, I, I shared somebody that I talk with a lot and I read his work all the time because he picks up different things. If you haven't heard it, we did a, a really fun podcast last season on the zone defenses, which I think he was really ahead of the curve. We talked about the Raptors in particular, which ended up becoming, of course, important in the playoffs. So read Jared, listen to him wherever you can hear him on various things and check out the Patreon. It looks like next week is going to be when I start really getting into the weeds about this season so far in the macro sense. Obviously, in the micro sense, Dunked On is a great place for that because Nate and I are going through it every day. We just released a podcast earlier on Thursday about Steph Curry's injury, and we did a mailbag and a bunch of other things, and we'll, of course, keep going with that. But if you want to support this show, there are lots of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. Those are super important things for this show and any other Especially this one, though, because it comes out at a different time. There's no real schedule to it. It's guest availability and my own availability. So we really do appreciate it. And then leaving a rating and review in the podcast player of your choosing, that's a way for people to find podcasts. It can help with the metrics and algorithms and all that fun stuff. And it's great if it's Apple Podcasts. I understand if it's not. And if you want to be super awesome, if you use a different podcast player, you can leave a review both places because Apple's still just big in our business. And then the single biggest thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is check out our sponsors for this episode. That is betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus, which is awesome. As I said before, there, there will be a real GM radio episode every week. I'm working on the theory of next week's episode. I actually have a couple past that already sort of lined up. But that one, uh, it's just about whether we're ready to get into specific stuff because I, I try not to do overreactions to small sample size on this show, really anywhere, but especially on this show because it's once a week and I design it to be more evergreen. So we'll see. I have an idea of how I want it to work and hopefully I will be able to do it with an awesome guest. That's the idea as of right now. 
If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to impart that. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is the benefit of email is that it doesn't go anywhere, whereas Twitter could be ephemeral for a bunch of different reasons. So if you write it there, I will read it. I try to respond. I don't always. but And so if I didn't respond, don't think it's any sort of slight. It's just, but I did read it because that's important to me. Real Jam Radio will be back next week with a great guest, still working on exactly what that will be. But in the interim, you can check out Dunked On, Nate Duncan and I, five times a week, getting into what has happened, summarizing all the events of the NBA and, and doing our analysis. And my writing work is at The Athletic. I, as some of you might have seen on Twitter, I, I just re-upped a new contract with them, and I'm going to be, fortunately, considering what's happening with the Golden State Warriors, focused more on a national basis. I'm working on a series of pieces that'll be pretty cool that are in the editorial process right now, so you can check that stuff out in addition to everything else that I do. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited world-class treatment center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. You will also benefit from specialized programs, 24-hour medical care, and the comfort of our outstanding facilities. Let us help you. We will answer your call 24-7 and can get you into treatment as soon as today. If outpatient care is right for you, you can receive a same-day assessment and attend therapy in person or virtually. And because we accept most private insurance plans, you get premium care without the premium price. Don't wait. Start your new year. Start your new life today. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.